How did Jeff Bezos realize you could sell anything on the internet? Why did Bill Gates create Control-Alt-Delete? How did Synchronized Swimming prepare Christine Lagarde for international politics? What made Bob Iger bet big on Marvel? And what inspired Diane von Furstenberg to create the wrap dress? On The David Rubenstein Show, peer-to-peer conversations, I uncover the untold stories of the world's most successful leaders. Listen now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to For the Ages, a history podcast presented by the New York Historical Society and hosted by David Rubenstein. Join us as he deftly explores the rich and complex history of the United States with some of the nation's foremost historians and creative thinkers, because history matters. Hello, I'm David Rubenstein. Today, we're going to be in conversation with Susan Eisenhower, who is a granddaughter of Dwight D. Eisenhower and also the author of a book about her grandfather, How Ike Led. Thank you very much for being with us, Susan. Well, David, thank you very much for this opportunity. So your grandfather was um, president of the United States, was president from 1953 to 1961, elected in 1952, reelected in uh, 1956. When he was first elected, you were, by my calculations, one year old. You probably don't remember that. <laughs> but you were nine when he left. So uh, yeah. when you were, you know, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, did you go to the White House very much? Do you have any memories of the White House? Oh, we spent a lot of time there because uh, my father was working in Washington as well at the Pentagon. And, um, and so we did spend a lot of time there visiting with my grandparents. And uh, I can tell you, I can still go into the White House. And when I smell the floor, floor polish, uh, it brings back uh, real memories of uh, playing in those corridors on the ground floor uh, in between uh, tour guides uh, of the executive mansion. And I also know where all the secret staircases are, too. There are a lot of them in that house, actually. Now, uh, President uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt created a retreat called Shangri-La in the Catoctin Mountains. Uh, your grandfather renamed it Camp David. Was it upsetting to you that he didn't name it after you or... Did you reserve a fight in the family about that? Oh, never a fight. Actually, at that time, uh, Granddad named the two presidential yachts, one for my older sister, Barbara Ann, and one called the Susie E. And then when my younger sister, Mary, was born, they'd run out of presidential yachts, so the uh, outboard motorboat got called the Mary Jean. Uh, but of course, the thing is, is that historic events took place at Camp David, so it was not likely that they were going to rename that camp after the Khrushchev visit in 1959. Uh, they did decommission uh, those presidential yachts, and actually Barbara Ann became uh, John Kennedy's honey fits. So your grandfather was born uh, in the Midwest, um, and uh, ultimately I was one of seven brothers, is that right? That's right, six survived. What did his father do? He grew up in uh, Abilene, Kansas, is that right? Yes, his father um, was sort of the family rebel, I guess, because they came from a German Mennonite uh, family, uh, a part of a religious community. And uh, Ike's father uh, didn't want to be a farmer like uh, the other Eisenhowers. And he uh, also um, didn't want to be um, a German speaker. Um, so actually, Ike's generation is the first generation not to speak German, which is pretty amazing. Uh, in any case, um, you know, they they lived out on the on the plains and uh, these boys had a real uh, rough and tumble 
start to their uh, their life. And I think it was a you know it was a great environment in which to grow up. How did he wind up going to West Point? Did he always want to be a soldier, or what was the reason he went there? Well, you know, he loved history. He loved history so much his mother had to uh, lock up his history books in a uh, cupboard because he would uh, not tend to his chores. And you can imagine my poor great-grandmother had to rotate these boys through household chores because she didn't have any help otherwise. Uh, in any case, um, he, he loved history, but certainly the military was not in the cards. They were um, a deeply religious family, but they were also uh, pacifists. Um, so when Ike finally decides the only way he's going to get a college education is to get a free one, thanks to Uncle Sam, he went off to first applied to um, uh, Annapolis, to the Naval Academy. Um, and then he was too old for that because he'd put his older brother through college and then went to West Point. So it's a rather interesting, unlikely trajectory. Now, he graduated at a time when it was the, World War I was almost over. He didn't really get into combat. But later he uh, did get to know and work for General Pershing. What was that about? How did he get to know General Pershing? Well, David, if you'll allow me for a minute, I think uh, that World War I period is extremely relevant today. Uh, you might be interested to know that instead of being sent to the front, he was put uh, in charge, uh, actually commander of Camp Colt in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. And on the Gettysburg battlefield, the military uh, tried to teach um, a newly formed tank corps um, how to um, uh, shoot from mobile vehicles. We, this was the first war we were going to use those tanks. Um, and it was the only tank corps uh, in the Army. Now, what's significant about that is not only did I train the tank corps, um, but in September of that uh, 1918, the Spanish uh, flu influenza came into the camp and Eisenhower had to um, manage a very serious situation uh, for which there were no guidelines and regulations. Uh, I say this quickly to point out that at the age of 28, he received a Distinguished Service Medal uh, for his extraordinary command of Camp Colt, uh, 10,000 men under his command at age 28. So it's from there he goes uh, to the front, um, just as the war is coming to an end. Um, I mean, he didn't get there right away, but Pershing sends him uh, to write the American battlefields of France. And so the combination of Eisenhower's experience as a tank man and then understanding well the terrain of Europe played a very uh, big role in his intuitive sense of that war when uh, the Second World War came. Now, it was reported that before World War II, uh, Eisenhower was thinking that maybe his career wasn't going anywhere because he was, I think, in his early 50s and still wasn't a general. He was working as an aide, in effect, to General MacArthur, a very important person, but he was not really commanding a large group of people and wasn't in combat. So is it true that he was worried about the future of his career? Did he ever consider just leaving the military or he just thought he would stay till the end of his career in the military? Well, it's interesting. Uh, I do know uh, of at least two job offers he was given, uh, one during uh, the Great Depression and then uh, also a bit later, just before the war broke out. And I think um, Eisenhower had just at some point understood um, that a war was coming and this is what he had trained for and he was going to stay in the army come uh, hell or high water. Now, um, the other thing that is worth noting here um, is that just before the United States got into uh, World War II, um, he was the winning strategist of uh, one of the teams uh, put together for the largest war games in American history. That's the Louisiana Maneuvers. 
So he was already coming to uh, the attention, uh, not just of MacArthur, but of George Marshall, too. So when the World War II breaks out, ultimately, um, your grandfather is selected to lead the first kind of Western assault in Europe, which is really in northern Africa leading up to Italy. Uh, why was uh, General Eisenhower chosen for that? He wasn't a, a combat veteran, really. Who was the person who said, we really want to have Eisenhower lead this effort in Africa and Italy? Well, I, I'll tell you, some of Eisenhower's friends told him that he was being sent to be the fall guy uh, because he was actually put in command of the North African uh, campaign. Um, and the British, many of the British generals outranked him. Uh, that couldn't be very easy, issuing orders to people who actually have a higher rank than you do. Um, but, you know, he um, uh, I think he was already known in, in the military as uh, being a strategist, uh, I, uh, in 1925, for instance, he graduated from command and general staff colleges, number one in his class. Um, that was mostly, um, you know, a strategy, um, a war college. And so um, he had some talents in this area. Uh, may, of course, mistakes were made. He learned a lot from that. Um, but um, we uh, certainly the American uh, entry into the war at that point uh, saved the British who were really quite pinned down in that area. It was widely thought at the time that when there was a D-Day invasion or the equivalent of it, that it would be led by General George Marshall, who was uh, the Army Chief of Staff and, and, and more senior than Eisenhower. Why did uh, FDR ultimately select Eisenhower uh, to lead the D-Day invasion? And was that a surprise to Churchill or to Marshall? We won't know whether it was um, a surprise for Marshall because uh, George Marshall, I'm a great admirer of his, by the way, um, was uh, notorious for keeping his own counsel. Apparently, he was actually, as a person, rather hard to read. Um, and I'm sure that he must have been disappointed, but uh, he made it very clear to uh, President Roosevelt that he would do whatever um, President Roosevelt thought was right. My own feeling um, uh, is that Roosevelt must have looked at the situation and, and thought, you know, the old classic line, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Uh, because Eisenhower had already been successful uh, in the um, invasion of Sicily and, and things were, um, you know, going pretty well. And um, so the big uh, cross-channel invasion was the, um, you know, the, the great uh, iconic moment uh, that would hopefully turn the tide of the war. Uh, and Marshall already had very, very well-established relationships in Washington, a great relationship with Roosevelt, and by the way, had also been uh, um, you know, the architect of the, the war in the Far East, too. So I think, um, you know, it seemed to be working. So Roosevelt decided to continue with the formula. So when your grandfather is given the task of being the supreme allied commander to lead the most important invasion ever in military history, I suppose, uh, was he uh, worried about whether he could succeed or not? Did he ever prepare for failure? Well, first of all, uh, Eisenhower and any good military man is a contingency planner. So, um, you know, uh, certainly um, you, you plan for setbacks and you plan for victory. Uh, but this is a particularly complicated operation because it is the largest combined military operation in military history. And uh, this means that uh, Eisenhower had an array of um, uh, subordinates who were not uh, American. Uh, they were they were British, Canadian. Uh, there uh, were all kinds of um, units from uh, other countries, and uh, they were integrated as a force for the first time 
um, in the conduct of warfare. Um, so that already was a new kind of job. And their choice of where to cross the channel uh, was tricky because it was not the shortest uh, distance between um, southern England and France. Uh, they did that to take the German enemy by surprise. But I would say that it was a very, very challenging uh, undertaking. And Eisenhower actually almost doubled the size of the force in the planning stages because he believed that that uh, level of firepower was going to be necessary. So it is said that in anticipation of not succeeding, um, General Eisenhower prepared a statement where he would basically take the blame for it. Is that correct? That is correct. Uh, this was a note that he wrote. Um, he said that if uh, any fault attaches to the operation, uh, it's his, you know, the responsibility is his and his alone. Um, I think that's very moving because actually, as you get into the details of what was happening just before um, the decision to deploy those troops, um, he had been warned that uh, the airborne forces were likely to be eviscerated after they dropped because the Germans had moved a division into the area. And then, of course, the notorious and uh, very troubling uh, weather forecast. Uh, we forget that um, the chairman of the uh, uh, weather forecasters um, said that there was a chance for an opening, but his committee didn't agree on that assessment. Um, so uh, between the airborne drop and the concern uh, that they might fail and the weather forecast, I would say that it, that uh, decision was really one for the history books. They didn't have weather satellites in those days, I guess. So they didn't know for sure. Exactly. No, they didn't. And it was that opening that really not only created an element of surprise, which was important strategically, uh, but it gave them enough time to uh, establish that beachhead. And Eisenhower famously says just before he makes the decision, how long have I got? Because he had only 24 hours to uh, you know, uh, secure the beachhead to start bringing in supplies and men. After the war is over, uh, General Eisenhower comes back. He stays in the military uh, for a while, but then he later becomes uh, uh, president of Columbia University and later becomes, uh, of course, presidential nominee. But he, it, amazingly to many people reading this today, it was surprising to me, he was actually offered the Democratic nomination for president in 1948 by Harry Truman, who said, I won't run. Why don't you be the Democratic nominee? Why did Eisenhower turn that down? Well, uh, by the way, not just in 48, but 52 as well, um, Truman made that offer. But see, first of all, nobody knew whether General Eisenhower was a Republican or a Democrat. So not only did the Democrats come calling, but the Republicans did too. And every time they got to either party got to a point where they didn't think they could maybe necessarily pull off the election, they'd go ask Ike to take up uh, their standard. So finally, the Republicans persuade him to become a, the nominee of the party in 1952. Um, did he um, really compete in primaries or they just kind of handed him the nomination? Well, the, the thing is, I think um, Eisenhower would have loved it if they'd handed him the nomination, but it didn't work like that. And what was really underway within the Republican Party um, was, um, you know, tremendously deep divisions after uh, Governor Thomas Dewey. Uh, failed to win the presidency in 1948. Uh, so the party by that time was taken over by a very, very conservative wing run by um, Senator Robert Taft. And Taft was an isolationist. And I think that's one reason uh, it wasn't a close call for Ike. He understood that if the isolationists won, uh, won big, 
1952 that everything he'd worked for during the war and as the first commander of NATO forces could well be jeopardized. Uh, so I think that was a big part of um, why he finally decided to throw his hat in the ring. So he threw his hat in the ring. He gets the nomination. And then he's asked, well, who do you want to have as vice president? And he said, oh, I thought the convention makes that decision. And they say, no, it's your decision. Uh, why did he pick Nixon? Was he recommended? Did he have, had he ever met Nixon? Well, from everything I've read, it, 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 it seems like a very, very different process for selecting vice presidents in those days. And yes, obviously, the ultimate decision was Eisenhower's, but the party tended to play a much bigger role. And I think that probably part of um, uh, Nixon's attraction is he came from a big state, the state of California. Also, he had um, um, strong anti-communist credentials that uh, seemed to um, augur for uniting the party after all, because uh, Eisenhower was known to be a moderate, or at least he made it pretty clear when he got out on the campaign trail that he was a moderate. Um, and um, the, one of the big tasks for him was unifying a very, very fractured party that just managed to squeak in um, uh, uh, and control both the House and the Senate in uh, uh, 53. So during the campaign in 52, Eisenhower says, I will go to Korea, implying that he will go there and see if he can fix the problem we're having in the Korean War. Did he have a plan? And, and why does that so upset uh, Harry Truman such that they almost never talked again? First of all, I think the, you know, the campaign uh, campaigns are always uh, fractious. And, uh, you know, Eisenhower and Truman were, were friends. So, um, you know, that put their relationship under strain. But um, Eisenhower's campaign promise to go to Korea was really very uh, important for Eisenhower's thinking because uh, at, by that time the war was in in stalemate. We were losing troops and making little to no progress at all in the uh, advancement of the war. And um, so he went. Um, he was there at a packed schedule. Actually, even flew over the front to see what the terrain looked like. Remember, this is a military man, and he comes back. Um, actually consults with his old boss, Douglas MacArthur, for MacArthur's views on this. He, MacArthur just been fired not too long before um, for having kind of um, outlandish views in the minds of some people um, on this subject. And Eisenhower decided we're just going to have to really press for an armistice here. There were proposals on the table, and, and that's what ended up happening. What do you think it was like between MacArthur and Eisenhower? MacArthur is this gigantic military figure. Um, Eisenhower is kind of his assistant. And all of a sudden, Eisenhower becomes president and MacArthur can't even get any votes to, be, to win a primary anywhere. I don't know. Somebody should write that book. What a pair those two were, because they, they couldn't have been more dif different from a personality perspective. You know, I'm convinced, having researched all that, that uh, Eisenhower was determined somehow to be the un-MacArthur. You know, the opposite of his boss, who was uh, flamboyant, who was controversial, who was uh, highly opinionated, um, who sometimes went on such tears with his staff. So uh, you see a very different leadership style coming from Dwight Eisenhower. But still having said that, I think that they both ultimately uh, deeply respected, um, you know, the, their various um, uh, leadership um achievements. I don't see how they could otherwise. MacArthur, however, wanted to be president of the United States and his protege um, actually got elected instead. So, you know, that's a classic, isn't it? 
1954, the Supreme Court ruled in Brown v. Board of Education that all schools had to be desegregated uh, with all deliberate speed. Um, it wasn't happening so quickly in Little Rock, and President Eisenhower sends in military troops. Uh, did President Eisenhower support that decision, and was it difficult to send in military troops to enforce the decision? From all my research, and actually even from his own memoirs and his speeches, um, you know, felt very, very strongly about this. The Supreme Court had spoken. However, I think it's worth noting that Brown versus Board of Education, that's Brown 1 and Brown 2, there were two decisions uh, on that case, uh, really um, were not part of what's called settled law. So there was still some debate about whether or not, um, you know, um, Plessy versus Ferguson could be overturned. The point being is that Eisenhower lent the political power of the presidency uh, to supporting um, the, the findings of the Supreme Court and did so uh, in no uncertain terms. In Little Rock, Arkansas, they uh, were uh, expected uh, to submit their desegregation of schools plan. They did, but then, um, you know, there were court battles back and forth and, and uh, the governor um, went back on his assurances to the president of the United States. I'll tell you, you didn't do that with him. <laughs> um, and so he deploys the 101st Airborne Division to Little Rock, Arkansas. So just to remind uh, all of us that the 101st Airborne Division was one of the two American divisions that did D-Day. This was a very serious signal that Eisenhower was sending on uh, Brown versus Board of Education. So it was reported by many people that Richard Nixon was uh, not that popular with Eisenhower and some in the party. And so President Eisenhower was thinking that maybe he would have a different vice president in 56. Did he really want to have Nixon stay on the ticket? Well, you know, um, uh, from a management perspective, I like to test um, people's um, uh, viewpoint and their sincerity. And I'd also add their personal drive. And yes, I, I think uh, from what I read in Eisenhower's diaries and the rest of it, he gave some passing consideration to others. He tried to get um, individuals to sort of uh, seek um, Nixon's thoughts on this subject. Uh, but again, I think, you know, it was a consideration that involved other members of the Republican Party as well. Um, as it turned out, um, uh, Richard Nixon was um, his uh, vice president again. Uh, one of the most interesting things I ran across is actually that uh, I even thought about starting a third party at one stage. Uh, think of how history would have been different if he decided to do that. So um, he's reelected overwhelmingly in a second term. And then um, because of the constitutional amendment that was then in force, he, he couldn't run a third term and he retires to Gettysburg. Why did he pick Gettysburg as a place to establish his residence? Well, you know, he he was there in 1918 during the Spanish flu um, epidemic and uh, the tank training corps. And, you know, interestingly enough, uh, he still knew a lot of people in downtown Gettysburg, the locals from that experience uh, during World War One. Uh, so it was close to Washington. It wasn't that far from New York. And my uh, grandparents really very much wanted to have a place out in the country because my grandfather was a hunter and a fisherman and an outdoors kind of guy. And, uh, you know, he was ready to get back out there with, uh, uh, you know, the horses and the cats and the cows and everything else. <laughs> so um, you were 17 when he died. 
but you had your teenage years to spend some time with him. Did you spend a lot of time in Gettysburg? Well, I went to elementary school in Gettysburg. This is in his post-presidency. Um, we also uh, moved up to Gettysburg before he left the White House. Uh, so, um, of course, we, we actually lived on an adjacent farm. And, uh, it, you know, uh, my parents were very careful to try and keep uh, our uh, family life separate from official life. But uh, I love to bring up um, world leaders to the Gettysburg farm. Uh, and so that was kind of an invasion of normal family life to have somebody like Winston Churchill come to the farm. Uh, Nikita Khrushchev uh, came to the farm in 1959. So uh, sometimes we were brought out to show how well behaved we were. <laughs> so uh, many people who are watching this, no doubt, were not uh, alive when President Eisenhower was president. So they may not be as familiar with him as you are and, and as I am. Uh, what would you like the people who are younger to know about President Eisenhower? What do you think they should take away from your book and your, your knowledge of him? Well, um, there uh, are a couple of things. First of all, I, I would say that um, he did have a two-term presidency that he called the middle way. And he believed it was important um, to retain uh, outstanding relationships with members of uh, the other party, and also outstanding relationships with all three, among all three co-equal branches of government. Uh, because of uh, the personal approach that he took to uh, building and sustaining these relationships, uh, he managed during a period of tremendous technological change and advancement uh, to balance the budget three times in eight years to get close to it on two other occasions. As a matter of fact, he left John Kennedy with a budget surplus. Uh, he managed after the, he ended the Korean War, and after the end of that war, there were no combat casualties of American troops. Um, and so peace and prosperity, I think, is probably his biggest legacy. Uh, and then I would say also, I came to realize really probably how monumental it was that he reshaped the Republican Party, taking it um, from an isolationist party to an internationalist party, um, that, that brought us other uh, leaders like uh, Gerald Ford and George H.W. Bush and others. Um, uh, if we had had that persistent problem of isolationism, our country would have been more deeply divided in the coming years. He was um, a decent, generous man who uh, could be as tough as he had to be. Um, but I hope that um, I managed to paint a portrait of a human being. Uh, because that's what he was, and he was a, uh, a fine one at that. Susan, um, I want to thank you for a very interesting conversation about your grandfather, and uh, appreciate your letting us know these inside stories and, and reporting them in your book, which I enjoyed re uh, reading a great deal. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. On behalf of the New York Historical Society, thank you for joining us for another episode of For the Ages, a history podcast hosted by David Rubenstein. We hope you enjoyed it and come back for more. Thanks for your support. You can share your thoughts at public.programs at nyhistory.org.